0: I've always loved um, impressionism and abstract art. And so starting to see that sort of expressed through cake and pastry, just kind of anything goes is, I think, more exciting because it makes the walls of what's good less rigid. This is
1: Taste. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. Rose Wild is the pastry chef and owner of Red Bread in Los Angeles, a pioneering micro bakery that's been championing whole grains and sustainable baking for over a decade. She's headed the bread and pastry programs at Michelin-starred Rustic Canyon, Manuela, and Mother Wolf, and now she's sharing all that wisdom in the wonderful new baking book Bread and Roses. We loved having Rose on the show to talk about the joys and challenges of baking with whole grains, her flock of chickens, and more. Rose Wild. This is Taste. Thank you for coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm so pumped to be here.
1: I'm so happy to be talking with you. And to start off, I want to know about what was like the last good pastry that you've had.
0: Oh, um, I have been having a lot of bagels. Do those count? <laughs> I think I think those count. And you're
1: in LA, which I think the bagel scene in LA has been discussed a lot lately. So I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are. Where are these good bagels?
0: Um, well, I usually make a lot, but recently I have been uh, not uh, baking as much, just kind of taking a beat post book tour. So I have been hitting up Courage bagels a lot. Um, I really like their just like kind of wonky, open crumb, crispy exterior bagels. So... That's usually my go-to right now.
1: Yeah, I've heard a lot about courage, and I actually have not been before. You know, I'm from L.A., but I stay on the west side with my family normally, and I've heard the bagel line is so long that um, I'd have to get up quite early to make it over. I'm curious, like, how early are you getting in line?
0: (laughs) Um, That is true. Uh, Usually you have to get in line at 7 a.m., If you want to kind of get in and get out and still have things you can accomplish in your day, Um, I usually buy like 12 extra and then just have them at home so that I don't have to be in that line as often. But if you go any time after eight, you're looking at standing in line at least an hour and a half. It, It wraps around quite a few blocks, like very happy for them.
1: Yeah, that's so exciting. Do you have a favorite cream cheese or topping combination that you go for?
0: Uh, I'm pretty classic. I like the cream cheese and um some capers and some red onions and some like, you know, fresh cut locks.
1: All good things. Um, and you mentioned your book tour, which is for your your great new book, Bread and Roses. And I'm curious, like, how was the book tour? Did you have any kind of special eating experiences when you were going around talking to everyone about the book?
0: Um, the book tour was amazing. I went to nine cities in eight weeks, which was quite a whirlwind. Yeah, that's a um, lot. Yeah, it was really wonderful to celebrate in so many cities with so many friends, um, new and old. Um, you know, a lot of people came out who I've known for a long time, and also I got to meet a lot of new bakers who were just really excited about whole grains. Um, I ate at all my favorite places and, um, tried some new ones. Um, I really enjoyed my time briefly in Chicago, uh, sorry, Portland. Um, which Portland? I, oh, in Portland, Oregon. I was only there for 36 hours, which was like not enough time, but I went to, to bore bread and I hit up lovely's Fifty Fifty, where, um, they just make the most incredible pizza and the most incredible ice creams. Um, so I, I always go there. I've been dying to go to Lovely's Fifty
1: Fifty. Actually, my sister lives in Portland, so I have had it on my list for a while. And it doesn't surprise me that you've been eating a lot of bread and pizza, et cetera, on the book tour. I'm curious, like when you walk into maybe a bakery for the first time, are you looking for anything in the pastry case or behind the counter that's an indicator that you're going to be into the kind of food that they're doing?
0: I always look if they are highlighting whole grains, um, in some form or fashion. And I also always train my eye on the savory pastry. Um, just because I think that like, you know, the normal offering that people put out is sweet. Um, but I love a savory pastry to like balance those things out. Um, I definitely am like a savory in the morning kind of sweets at night person. Um, So those are always exciting to me because I feel like people really kind of stretch their creativity, whereas with sweets, you have to touch a few more nostalgia points. Um, And yeah, like if there's something with whole grain, that's going to be the thing I order because I just know from my own taste and experience like white flour tastes like nothing. So I'm only going to taste sugar and whatever, maybe fruit they're um, highlighting. But if there is a whole grain at play, then there's going to be a whole nother layer of flavor for me to experience. So that's always what I go for. Definitely. And I'm not
1: surprised that you're mentioning whole grain because that is kind of the beating heart of your book. I'm curious um, with your own like bread pastry background, maybe even did you have like a gateway whole grain that first got you excited about baking with whole grains?
0: So I grew up um, eating whole grains without realizing that was not necessarily the norm just because my my father and my mother ran a little like natural food store and cafe when I was very young that was attached to a garden and a yoga studio and an apothecary. They were very big hippies, um, so I grew up eating quinoa and millet and and corn, um, and didn't realize until I got to school and I got some very weird looks at lunchtime that what I was eating was not what everyone else was eating. Um, so I think that they were all sort of my gateways, um, but when I when I teach people. I usually encourage people to check out corn, millet, or sonora because they're such tender grains, especially with corn and millet. They're gluten free. Um, and you can sub in 10, 20, 30%, or in the case of sonora, 100%. And it's just really hard to tell texturally that there's necessarily any difference. Like you're not going to get density out of those grains, um, but you're going to get a huge explosion of flavor. So I think those are like simple, easy ways to like start baking with whole grain and just immediately maximize like the flavor of things that you already love.
1: Yeah, I really like how you're talking about this ratio that you can sub in because I think that for people who are home bakers, certainly for myself, like there are certain things that I make very often. And the idea of finding a new recipe that is friendly towards whole grain, like maybe is a little stressful, but being able to incorporate it into like my brownie recipe that I make all of the time is cool. And then also I imagine it kind of empowers people to be developing their palate and tasting for the difference in the first place.
0: Absolutely. I think generally, especially with food um, trends, which is like a word I hate when applied to food, um, we're always asking people to like sort of give up something and go all in on something else. And I think in whole grains, you see that as like, you have to try this whole new recipe or go 100% or are you even trying? You know? And I really kind of push back at that narrative because, you know, From a sustainability viewpoint, if all of us bake at 10, 20% whole grains, which again will not change the dynamics of how you make it or the way it cooks, um, it it will be so sustainable for our farmers, for our millers. and for your pocketbook, as well as for, you know, nutrition and flavor. Um, So it's really the smaller things that we do at scale that have the bigger impact when we're all doing it. And I have no desire to make you abandon your grandmother's incredible biscuit recipe. I just want you to use a little whole grain in there because chances are, her grandmother was using whole grain because that's what it was available to her. So I think it's all about like using the best of what you have today with the things you love from the past.
1: I love that perspective so much. And I think it is true and interesting to think about the fact that even what we think of as the family recipe was not always the family recipe and not the way that like agriculture was homogenized or just what was available to you kind of shaped what those family recipes were in our immediate knowledge. And it also is very sweet to me because I read in your book that I think at one point your parents were using your grandpa's bread recipe in the restaurant or something like that. Do you, have you baked from the bread recipe recently? Is it still in the rotation?
0: It's still like the, I would say definitive bread recipe, but I have, you know, he was really making like a country sourdough and that's it. That was his, the extent of his obsession. He was uh, an in-house lawyer for RKO Pictures. So he was pretty busy, but this was his like hobby. Um, And I've since taken that recipe and ratios and technique and like adjusted it to like what I have in California and like more whole grains than he had access to. So I would say it's a living document at this point that has trickled down into all the recipes I have. Oh, I
1: love that. And I love thinking about like before there were the bread bros, there was your grandpa.
0: <laughs> yeah, he used to I mean, he had everything hidden in a closet, so I often joke that I'm like the first person in my family willing to come out of the closet with bread making. <laughs> Do it <laughs> in the light of day. Yeah, you're you're really putting your name on it. Um
1: And I like talking about these ideas of sustainability because I know that your micro bakery red bread in Los Angeles is very sustainable. And I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about maybe like what was the hardest part of getting a sustainable micro bakery infrastructure up and running and what's been like one of the rewarding parts?
0: I think when I started it in twenty eleven, which was way before we had like the language to describe it. Like I used to tell people, it's an internet bakery and I deliver by bike. (laughs) And I was like, like, Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But then the you know, 10 years later the pandemic hits and suddenly that's how everyone's doing it. And now we have this word called micro bakery, and now people get it. So, you know, oftentimes what you're doing um language or trends or stuff like that has to catch up. So I, I'm a really firm believer in just like doing what makes you happy instead of trying to chase anything like that as a result. Um, so I think certainly in 2011, describing it was difficult to like get people on board. Um, it was also a time when there was way less whole grains, like in the time since I started the Tehachapi Grain Project has become available to me. Nan Kohler um, established Kristen Toll. And these are two of the places that at least locally I get a ton of fresh flour from, which has amplified my baking as well. But Yeah, I think that if you're looking to do anything sustainable, that's not that's increasingly becoming the way we do things. But it is still a little economically out of reach in terms of sort of the structures on the back end available for you to like buy food from and um, buy pantry staples. Um, So I think it can become, uh, more expensive than a traditional model. Um, but I think the more of us that choose it, the more of us that push that to become the way, and it sort of evens out after a while, because what we're really doing is hiding the cost of real food. So if we move to being more transparent about that, I think it becomes easier, um, for everyone. Um, and, and, you know, conversely like the reward has been the fact that like from the out of the gate when i started making stuff and i was going to the santa monica farmers market on wednesdays here in california which is very famous um it was immediately recognized as food uh, that people hadn't seen before but still somehow recognized it like it just looked more real to people and so that connectivity, I think, is why anyone in food does what they do. Because you want to feed people, you want to feel that visceral, unbeatable connection that you can only get through food and and literally breaking bread with someone. Um, so that was really exciting and um, continues to be exciting. And um, yeah, I think the tide is turning because every day I get approached by people who are making uh, products that I think make me more sustainable. Like I just got sent a whole host of compostable, um, saran wrap and bags, to Whoa. which it's a, right. It's amazing. It doesn't sound that sexy, but like one of the biggest things that you produce plastic with in a kitchen is wrapping things and storing them properly. So like, I'm, I'm really pumped about this compostable <laughs> saran wrap.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's really cool. I think that, um, that's one of the things that when you work in pastry production or in all kinds of food production, you're using a lot and maybe to an outside perspective, like there's beeswax and there's kind of other alternatives that you can use. But when you're doing things at scale, especially like the things I've seen people use plastic wrap for, like there just isn't an alternative necessarily.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. There's a lot of ways you can switch and do, but like it's still plastic wrap has always been for me, like the, the, like, I don't know, the deepest cut because it's like, it's so hard to avoid even if you're trying. And so like, yeah, this company making these compostable items is is very cool.
1: Yeah, that is really cool. Um, And I want to obviously talk to you about your book because uh, I think it's so special and I have been wanting to get back into bread baking. I had a phase in like late 2019 into 2020. So the pandemic was well-timed for my own bread baking, but it's kind of fallen out. Um, And I think that like something I talk to people in cities about is that there's so much good bread available to us to buy like in a bakery. And obviously you do more than bread in the book, but I'm curious if you could maybe kind of pitch somebody on the value of making bread at home, whether that's like personal or culinary or something else.
0: Yeah. I mean, honestly, my bakery started because I couldn't find anyone making bread at the time in Los Angeles that I felt met the simplest definition of bread which was just flour, water, salt. That's it, without any intervention and um you know the the ingredient we constantly want to throw out the window is time and even beyond bread like with stews and cake like time makes everything taste better. Mm-hmm. I was not surprised that during the pandemic people Really exploded their exploration as bread because. They had time on their hands. And I think the funny thing is, is that we actually all have quite a bit of time on our hands, even if we're super busy. We just kind of fill it with these time socks, either scrolling on Instagram or TikTok or just like watching mindless TV, Um, which turns out you can do at the same time as you make bread. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even telling you to give anything up. I'm just saying use your hands at the same time. Um, I think one of the misconceptions for people who have never made bread is that it's going to be six or eight hours long. Um, and while it is, you are actually only doing anything for maybe half an hour, Um with like very low intervention, just mixing it, folding it, letting it rest, letting time do the work for you. Um, so I, I mean, my first reason is like if you like to work with your hands and you like to touch things, there's nothing more fun than bread because it'll change textures over the course of that time, and it is so fun um, to play with, uh, children really dig this. So if you got young kids, great activity, make them make bread. <laughs> um, you can pause bread at any period and throw it in the fridge and come back to it later and it'll still proof out. Okay. So it's very malleable. I feel like it's gotten a lot of bad rep. Um, Now that there are so many great uh, bread places for you to choose from, shouldn't stop you from making your own because other bakeries are making their favorite, their best. And the beautiful thing about flavor is our unique palette and how personal and individual that is. And so like, if you like bread, like this is your opportunity to make your favorite food exactly as you like it. Um, I love making bread also to like use up waste, you know, like if I have a cup of carrot soup left from like the other night's dinner, I'll like fold that in with the hydration. And now I've got a really fun carrot bread or if I've got just like half a cup of cranberries that I didn't use for the cranberry sauce and some wayward nuts, then I can make a cool bread there, you know? So I think that bread can be so much more than itself. Um, and anything that we practice gives us great life lessons about ourselves and time and community. And so I think bread is a really wonderful one, to just do over and over again and nourish yourself with, um, no good reason not to make your own bread. Yeah. Even I've taught and they're done and they're like, wow, I don't know that I do that again, but I have such a much deeper appreciation for bread and like, I eat it slower now. I savor it more. So learning is never a waste and doing is always rewarding.
1: Well, I feel like you gave me like seven great reasons, but the carrot soup bread baby is the most one that's speaking to me right now. I think that sounds so cool. And I love what you're saying about time because I think that is so right, that that simultaneously the thing that keeps me from making bread and also inspires me to do it is feeling connected to something in that moment. Like this is all I have to do is fold this dough a couple of times and then I'll go back to something else. But there's kind of singularity in that moment, which is so special. Yeah. Yeah. So, also, I want to talk about flavor. I love the flour tasting wheel in your book. Um, can you maybe explain what the porridge shortbread tests are for learning how grains will taste differently in a bread or in a pastry? Because I thought that was so cool.
0: Thanks. I was really proud of the flavor tasting wheel. It took um, it probably took as much time to kind of organize that information into an illustration as it did to write the book. <laughs> <laughs> You well, know, in, informational illustrations are really a lot of work. Um, I admire them so. So it was fun to to do them. Um, so the porridge test and the shortbread test are just tests I developed internally in my bakery, um, which is not to say that they weren't like things people were doing. They just became like part of my structured um, regiment that I would run Um New grains through to kind of learn as fast as I could. And it was a really great way to then sort of give that to a new pastry cook to learn themselves. Um, so the porridge test is really easy. It is honoring the fact that uh, around the world to this day, most of us eat grains in the form of porridge. And it was the original way we ever ate grains long before bread or pastries came into being. And you just mix. Water and flour together. This, because it's a test, you don't necessarily need to have a scale and do one to one. You can do it visually. Um, I really try to leave the book open ended for whether or not you identify as being a more sensory inclined person or more science inclined person, whatever makes you comfortable. Um, And then you're just going to let it sit for 15 minutes and come back to it, and you will see its hydration rate from this. Test. you know if it's really really sticky and tacky that grain can take a lot more water um, and but if you don't give it more water it's going to be kind of dry and dense so you're learning about what it's going to do in a more complicated recipe while having invested not a lot of time or ingredients right but mm-hmm. if it's really and soupy, then you know that you could pull back on the hydration, or this may be a a better flour suited to pastry because it doesn't have a lot of um, elasticity, right? When we talk about any kind of baked good, we're we're looking at elasticity, um, which is how well it um, snaps back on itself or extensibility, which is like how well it spreads, right? And those are kind of the two competing things that kind of give us the whole arsenal of baking, Um, so that one is super helpful to tell you how it's going to work in, um, breads because bread is primarily hydrated with water or some sort of lean liquid, um, before we get into things like brioche and stuff like that. Um, and then the shortbread test is sort of one step further and more of a pastry test because you are introducing, um, sugar and fat and, Um, These are important because whole grains really love fats. Um, Not only does it help to really amplify their flavor because fat is flavor as a rule. It carries it. It has it. Fat is glorious. Um, (laughs) And it is going to tenderize it as well. And then sugar does a similar thing. It kind of tenderizes the grain. It balances the grain because a lot of these grains have... Tannic qualities, earthy qualities that at least here in America, we don't necessarily um, celebrate bitter as a flavor as much as other countries might. Like, you know, you see in throughout Asia, like a love of teas or Amaro's in Italy, and we just don't quite have the same love of bitter. So like these can often, um, that's kind of the first thing that people kind of remark on when they're tasting grains. So sugar will balance that and also add moisture and you'll kind of see how it'll play out in a more um, enriched uh, situation, which is all of your pastries. Um, so yeah. And again, like a shortbread tastes like maybe 10 minutes to pull together, 10 minutes to bake. So Really low entry, not a lot of ingredients, and you can figure out a lot about the grain, taste it, see if you like it, and then go to your more complicated recipe, you know, because recipe making, feeding yourself, if it's just a hobby, it's exciting, it's still expensive. If it's to feed your family, like, There's a lot of pressure on there, you know. Like we don't all have endless resources to just chuck it in the trash and order takeout or like order a cake necessarily. So I really want you to have success, um, which is why these uh, tests came out um, as a way to quickly learn a lot. And if you just take like four grains you're really pumped about from the book and make four shortbreads, you will just learn so much in that one afternoon. See, this is how I know that you like teach things to people because I think like that's the
1: really special part about these two tests is that like you're not just learning how to make a porridge or a shortbread, but you're learning how to like pay attention to things in a recipe. And I think as someone who's a novice baker, like that's kind of what's most intimidating to me about baking is that like you can't necessarily be tasting and adjusting as you go quite in the same way that you do with cooking yeah. and often a recipe does say to you know mix dough until it has a certain texture or something like that that like maybe you don't have that knowledge and so I think these tests are cool because they are kind of knowledge building exercises more than anything else
0: Totally. Yeah. I think there's a lot of terms of art in baking that feel more foreign than necessarily cooking ones because we inherently cook more than we bake. Even if you love baking, you'll, you'll end up cooking in your life more than baking. So um, I wanted to be as approachable as a language, as playful as it can be, um, and really explain to you why things work. Yeah, I love that. And I hate to ask you this question because it's a hard one, but I'm
1: curious if you could call out maybe not your favorite recipe, but like a recipe that you're really excited about making right now, just kind of what some of your favorite children are in the book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if not a favorite child, you know, <laughs> favorite children. It always, yeah. though he gets asked. Um, we won't, I mean, we won't uh, tell them. <laughs> <laughs> I think they already know. I, I, I mean, obviously I love all of them. Um, I think right now people really know me for cakes and because of the season we're in, I've been making a lot of the, um, buckwheat chiffon cake that has yuzu curd and coconut cream and like a torched just really fast, um, Finish mm. of meringue. Um, but I think that the favorite child, the most guarded child that I finally decided to add to the book was the um, oatmeal chocolate chunk cookies. Um, it's the only recipe that I've made for 12 years that hasn't changed once. Um, and they were, we'd sell like 800 a week at the Santa Monica Farms Market. They were voted the best cookie in Los Angeles several years in a row. I used to joke that. Um, I would keep it to myself until I was dead and it was gar- carved on my tombstone. <laughs> People would have to visit me to get it. Uh, but I decided to put it in the book. So they're really delicious. Um, if I'm not having a bagel in the morning, I'll usually have this cookie because it's it's almost a granola bar. It's so like st- Stuffed full of oats, it's got like this geological gradient to it when you when you break it apart. So really pleasing.
1: Mm, I love geological gradient to
0: describe a cookie, <laughs> yeah. and you know
1: I do love gravestone recipes as a genre. I don't know if you've like seen them before. Oh, yeah. Yes, I'm obsessed. <laughs> yeah, they're they're so cool. But I'm glad that we didn't have to wait until then to get the recipe. Uh, I'm curious, like, what do you think? about it? Like, is there a, s- a single ingredient or a technique? Like what makes it like so special?
0: I mean, I just think it's special because I think it tastes like the best oatmeal cookie. I never loved the fact that oatmeal cookies usually were a, like a chocolate chip cookie or an oatmeal raisin cookie, but it just seemed like someone as an afterthought threw in a little oatmeal. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted something where that was as forward as possible. So I've yet to encounter another oatmeal cookie that has as many oats as mine does in it. (laughs) Uh, So I think that sets it apart. But honestly, you know, people have been trying to come up to me and like reverse engineer it by like guessing ingredients and trying to watch if my eyes twitch. (laughs) (laughs) Even knowing that I am primarily, I mean, you know a whole grain baker through and through um they would never guess the grain or that there was a grain it was always people were trying to figure out a, the spice mixture i used mm. um and i think that that's one of my favorite things when i explain to people whole grain is that you could actually drop vanilla and cinnamon and Any other fun flavoring, I mean, I don't encourage it, I love spices, but you could drop those things from your cookies and just use a whole grain and people will still think you use them and try to figure out what's in it because the grain itself has so much flavor, it will taste like you used vanilla. It'll taste like you used cinnamon. Um, So for these cookies, I use not only, you know, uh, flaked oatmeal, but also oatmeal flour. And I think that creamy, earthy, expressive um, quality of that grain was really what set it apart because it made it sort of porridge even though it had this like rough texture. Um, so yeah, the secret ingredient is always a good grain. <laughs> yeah. It's it's an extra oaty
1: oatmeal cookie. Um, I love that. I think it really like proves the whole mission of your book to be true, that you're getting this flavor that seems like it's coming from something uh, that's completely like outside of the wheelhouse, but actually it's the grain itself that whole time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, most, most things are 80% white flour. So that's 80% no taste. So if there's an opportunity to put even a little bit of flavor in there as a chef, I think that's imperative because that's my job. But as a you know home baker, like that's just fun. That's just where you get to play.
1: Definitely. Okay. So this is the recipe that's never been changed. What was the recipe in the book that you spent the most time tinkering with, making it perfect?
0: Um the Sonora Madeline's with a white chocolate shell and fennel fronds. I I don't know why. <laughs> I think probably because Madeline's are deceptively simple. And while I was developing everything for the cookbook and during the cookbook shoot, it was the thing that got pushed around so much. And so the timing was always off and I was just never satisfied. And then once I got into the cycle of not being satisfied, it was impossible to be satisfied. (laughs) (laughs) I just got like way too into my head and neurotic and like, could the bumps be taller? Could the shell be thicker? Um, it just became like the nitpickiest one, but ultimately it came out really beautifully, but I think we made like 48 versions and even the bakers I'd hired to help me the week of like, we're ch- we were changing it the week of shooting, and they were like losing their mind, greasing more and more Madeline mold. So I am sorry, but we did a great job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, my entire experience with this comes down to watching an episode of The Great British Bake Off where they make Madeline's, and the tins seem to be uh, tricky to work with. So I have sympathy to you and like everyone that was working on the book with you, but they look <laughs> beautiful. It worked. Thank you. <laughs> So I feel like, you know, thinking about how long you've been working with whole grains with red bread and just in your own pastry career, like it must be gratifying going back to these bakeries we're talking about that you were visiting to walk in and and see how much more options are available for home bakers and certainly like in bakeries as well so i'm curious if there are any other like trends or things you've been noticing in the baking like bakery space that you just are really excited by um because i feel like you and i both are like very much on like cake instagram and kind of just watching (laughs) everything that's happening
0: yeah, I know. I feel like I, at one point people knew me only for bread, and then another point people knew me only for cookies, and now I'm in my cake era. So it's a pretty good era to be in. It's very yeah, opulent. Isn't that, isn't that <laughs> that? It's very, there's something really sexy about abundance and really comforting about it as well. Um, I mean, I, what I think I love the most, and I find myself constantly looking for and wanting to like champion and other people is this uh, move to have things be a little more kind of beautiful chaos and more exploratory and just in general, I think anti-perfectionism, you know, there was a whole period of decades and decades where like French technique was the only respected technique. And if it didn't look like a human hand hadn't touched it, if it wasn't exquisitely perfect, then it wasn't any good. And I've always loved um, impressionism and abstract art, and so starting to see that sort of expressed through cake and pastry, where you can see the the way the palette moved, the way people laid down the piping, um, less. Less common blooms or even herbs being used and vegetables, which is, of course, my favorite thing to decorate with. Um, Just kind of anything goes is, I think, more exciting because it makes the walls of what's good less rigid and I think opens the way for people to bring more of their culture and history in too because again things can now look different they're not imperfect by that that old standard they're just different and new and a different perspective um but in general I'm I'm really, I, I really, again, push back against saying anything is over because <laughs> I think that all things are timeless. Like everything that we're doing now has been done before. So by definition, it doesn't have a time frame. Um, And I really want people to just lean into what they love because that's going to be the most authentic. And I think that that is really what people um, resonate with. I think the one thing that I'm really glad is truly over is this idea of constantly referring to dessert or bread as like bad for you or like sinful, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't think that served anyone except to create generations of people with like, you know, food disorders. And I am a big supporter of the fact that like eat anything you want, but eat everything, you know, don't, don't say some things are good and some things are bad, just like relax about it and enjoy life.
1: Yeah. I love that. I think the people that it served the most, right, are like companies selling you snack cakes or like, but the snack cakes still use white flour and like don't have anything of value in them. They're just kind of less delicious and have more guilt associated with them, which doesn't help anyone.
0: Yeah. Or the like, I don't know, I, I really can't get on board with the things that are like a cookie that's zero sugar and zero fat. And I'm like, that's a biscuit. Yeah. <laughs> when I,
1: say, I, when I say snack cakes, I don't mean like a snacking cake. I mean, like uh like snack wells, you know, like a packaged, like yeah, low totally. calorie, low fat, low flavor, low everything.
0: That's the point you're going to be so disappointed. Just have the cake and be satiated, and then eat your salad.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, and I have to ask you, like, what is it like having chickens in Los Angeles?
0: I love my chickens. They're so great. I wanted them for years, and I think I really, I mean, I, I didn't get them because I was really worried about having them in an urban setting. Um, And I will say that it definitely forces me to find a certain kind of living situation where I have the room for them. So um, there is that investment. Um, It also involves being really nice and sucking up to your neighbors (laughs) because- Giving them eggs. Yeah. Giving them eggs or anything you make with eggs. And I use all my chicken's eggs for um, my baked goods. They're almost capable of keeping up with like the production I do now with micro bakery. I do have to substitute occasionally around holidays with um, farmer's market eggs. Um, But uh, it's the best. I mean, they're not only do they give you great eggs, which is super, but They're actually fairly clean animals, like they tend to keep things in their area, and they're incredibly social and very sweet. I know a lot of people are scared of birds and chickens, so I've watched them like come around by interacting with mine, but I feel like, you know, I get up in the morning, I make myself some tea, and I go watch them, and I just learn so much about hierarchies and social interactions from the way they like treat each other (laughs) it's a really great show is what I'm saying
1: yeah if you set up a live stream I would I would tune in and watch it
0: I really should
1: (laughs) but I need like your commentary on like everyone's names and how they get along and what's been happening differently like not just a video
0: We've named all of the chickens after um, great ladies of the cinema and the stage because (laughs) Los Angeles. Um, So all of them have some great film or play that they, um, uh, you know, come from. Um, we've had to do a lot more sucking up to our neighbors recently because we did raise some chickens from eggs because some of our hens went broody and we decided to give them eggs to hatch. And we had a chicken named Zoila um, who turned five months and became a rooster. Oh, no. <laughs> His name is now Ziggy after Ziggy started. (laughs) And he is a little noisy, but he's so beautiful that our neighbors don't seem to mind and they come visit him. So sometimes being beautiful is very helpful in helping you keep your neck.
1: (laughs) I think it might be maybe a little less that he's beautiful and more that you're making such beautiful pastries and giving them to your neighbors, but a win is a win.
0: It'll help.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, this is taste. um, The theme of the podcast is talking about your taste. So to close the episode today, I want to play a little like fast and furious game with you where I'll give you a question. Then you can just tell me the first thing that comes into your head. Are you
0: ready? Okay. Yeah. Go
1: to pastry to start the day with.
0: Um, If I'm out, I'm going to get like a ham and cheese croissant. Nice. Um, Your favorite flower to decorate with. Ooh, a uh, three-way tie between dahlias, lasansas, and peonies. Anything with drama. I love it. And your favorite vegetable to decorate with? Oh, um, any kind of radicchio or treviso, like those kind of lettuces, which are basically just flower heads. Yeah, the flower-like le- lettuces. Yeah. Okay,
1: now your favorite flower, like with a U, to bake with?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, sonora or corn. Okay. Uh, your favorite cookbook? Um, I have all of Francis Malman's cookbooks. Um, I love cooking outdoors with live fire. I think Green Fires is my favorite of his. Cool. And your favorite baking book? Ooh, right now it's a tie between The Last Bite by Anna Higgin and um, also Grist by Abra Behrens. Um, They're both uh, amazing. Yeah, I love those. And I like um, Roughage, the vegetable
1: okay. book. And, and Pulp. She's had- a, like, She's, she yeah, she's killing it.
0: <laughs> yeah. And they're they're so thorough and beautiful. I love them. Mm-hmm. Your favorite bookstore? Um, now Serving. I love it.
1: Your favorite LA restaurant?
0: I go out to eat less now, but I love sneaking out to found oyster. Your
1: favorite LA bakery that's not your own?
0: um i love what andy's doing at bubs and grandma i think it's like a classic bakery as well as a diner and i'm obsessed with their um tuna salad Mm. your favorite farmer's market produce to bake with um i love working with passion fruit and when it's in season wakatai which is a kind of supercharged mint that i love infusing into anything with chocolate Ooh, I feel like passion
1: fruit is the ultimate like LA baker flux because it's just, it's never in season in New York and it's so expensive, but in LA you can actually do fun things with it.
0: Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. We are spoiled. We have the passion fruit.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm glad you have it and you're doing good things with it. <laughs> um, okay. Last two, a restaurant that you wish could be your neighborhood restaurant. So it's not in your neighborhood, but magically it could be.
0: I'd love if quarter sheets was in my neighborhood. Cause I love pizza and I love Hannah's cakes.
1: This is such an LA answer that instead of picking like a different city or a different country, you did like a different neighborhood in LA.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We love it here. What can, what can I say? (laughs) Yeah. And like no
1: parking. (laughs) Okay. To close, um, a fictional food scene that you wish you could eat.
0: Oh, I have been wanting to eat the magical table from hook since i was about seven years old and i think i'm going to die still wanting to eat that um wait i haven't i can't picture this it's is it a pirate table that they have um they're eating it uh at on never on neverland and Uh, a, a robin williams playing adult um peter pan can't see the food um because he has to believe and pretend and then the minute he gets it the f- like table explodes and there's like cheese shaped as faces there's cream pies of every rainbow color there's like a turkey and a honey baked ham there's these overflowing salads like it's just it's so amazing
1: <laughs> okay now i know what i'm going to watch tonight um yeah and thank you so much for coming on the show rose it was so much fun talking with you
0: thank you so much i had a blast i'm a big fan so it was a Huge honor to be here. This is Taste
1: is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.